Psalm 16 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Wainwright. The Treasury of David. Volume 1 by Charles Spurgeon, Psalm 16. Title, Mictam of David. This is usually understood to mean the Golden Psalm, and such a title is most appropriate, for the matter is as the most fine gold. Ainsworth calls it David's Jewel, or Notable Song. Dr. Hawker who is always alive to passages full of savour, devoutly cries, some have rendered it precious, others golden, and others precious jewel. And as the Holy Ghost by the apostles, Peter and Paul, hath shown us that it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the term mectum? before but if spared to write upon psalm fifty six fifty seven fifty eight fifty nine and sixty we shall see it again and shall observe that like the present these psalms although they begin with prayer and imply trouble abound in holy confidence and close with songs of assurance as to ultimate safety and joy. Dr. Alexander, whose notes are peculiarly valuable, thinks that the word is most probably a simple derivative of a word signifying to hide, and signifies a secret or mystery, and indicates the depth of doctrinal and spiritual import in these sacred compositions. If this be the true interpretation, it well accords with the other, and when the two are put together, they make up a name which every reader will remember, and which will bring the precious subject at once to mind, the sum of the precious secret. Subject. We are not left to human interpreters for the key to this golden mystery. For speaking by the Holy Ghost, Peter tells us, David speaketh concerning him, Acts 2.25. Further on in his memorial sermon, he said, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Acts 2. 29 through 31. Nor is this our only guide, 
for the apostle paul led by the same infallible inspiration quotes from this psalm and testifies that david wrote of the man through whom is preached unto us the forgiveness of sins acts eight thirty five through thirty eight it has been the usual plan of commentators to apply the psalm both to david to the saints and to the lord jesus but we will venture to believe that in it christ is all since in the ninth and tenth verses like the apostles on the mount we can see no man but jesus alone division the whole is so compact that it is difficult to draw sharp lines of division it may suffice to note our lord's prayer of faith verse one avowal of faith in jehovah alone two three four five the contentment of his faith in the present six seven and the joyous confidence of his faith for the future eight eleven exposition verse one preserve me o god for in thee do i put my trust preserve me keep or save me or as horsley thinks guard me even as bodyguards surround their monarch or as shepherds protect their flocks tempted in all points like as we are the manhood of jesus needed to be preserved from the power of evil and though in itself pure the lord jesus did not confide in that purity of nature but as an example to his followers looked to the lord his god for preservation one of the great names of god is the preserver of men job seven twenty and this gracious office the father exercised towards our mediator and representative it had been promised to the lord jesus in expressed words that he should be preserved isaiah forty nine seven eight thus saith the lord the redeemer of israel and his holy one to whom man despiseth to him whom the nation abhorreth i will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people this promise was to the letter fulfilled both by providential deliverance and sustaining power in the case of our lord being preserved himself he is able to restore the preserved of israel for we are preserved in christ jesus and called as one with him the elect were preserved in his preservation and we may view this mediatorial supplication as the petition of the great high priest for all those who are in him the intercession recorded in john chapter seventeen is but an amplification of this cry holy father keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are when he says preserve me he means his members his mystical body himself and all in him but while we rejoice in the fact that the lord jesus used this prayer for his members we must not forget that he employed it most surely for himself and so truly taken upon him 
the form of a servant that as man he needed divine keeping even as we do and often cried unto the strong for strength frequently on the mountain top he breathed forth this desire and on one occasion in almost the same words he publicly prayed father save me from this hour john twelve twenty seven if jesus looked out of himself for protection how much more must we his erring followers do so o god the word for god here used is elohim by which name the lord jesus when under a sense of great weakness as for instance when upon the cross was wont to address the mighty god the omnipotent helper of his people we too may turn to el the omnipotent one in all hours of peril with the confidence that he who heard the strong cryings and tears of our faithful high priest is both able and willing to bless us in him it is well to study the name and character of god so that in our straits we may know how and by what title to address our father who is in heaven for in thee do i put my trust or i have taken shelter in thee as chickens run beneath the hens so do i betake myself to thee thou art my great overshadowing protector and i have taken refuge beneath thy strength this is a potent argument and pleading and our lord knew not only how to use it with god but how to yield to its power when wielded by others upon himself according to thy faith be it done unto thee is a great rule in heaven in dispensing favor and when we can sincerely declare that we exercise faith in the mighty god with regard to the mercy which we seek we may rest assured that our plea will prevail faith like the sword of saul never returns empty it overcomes heaven when held in the hand of prayer as the saviour prayed so let us pray and as he became more than a conqueror so shall we also through him let us when buffeted by storms right bravely cry to the lord as he did in thee do i put my trust verses two three four five o oh, my soul thou hast said unto the lord thou art my lord my goodness extendeth not to thee but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another god their drink offerings of blood will i not offer nor take up their names into my lips the lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup thou maintainest my lot o my soul thou hast said unto the lord thou art my lord in his inmost heart the lord jesus bowed himself to do service to his heavenly father and before the throne of jehovah his soul vowed allegiance to the lord for our sake we are like him when our soul truly and constantly in the presence of the heart-searching god declares her full consent 
to the rule and government of the infinite Jehovah, saying, Thou art my Lord. To avow this with the lip is little, but for the soul to say it, especially in times of trial, is a gracious evidence of spiritual health. To profess it before men is a small matter, but to declare it before Jehovah himself is of far more consequence. This sentence may also be viewed as the utterance of appropriating faith, laying hold upon the Lord by personal covenant and enjoyment. In this sense may it be our daily song in the house of our pilgrimage. My goodness extendeth not to thee. The work of our Lord Jesus was not needful on account of any necessity in the divine being. Jehovah would have been inconceivably glorious had the human race perished and had no atonement been offered. Although the life work and death agony of the Son did reflect unparalleled luster upon every attribute of God, yet the most blessed and infinitely happy God stood in no need of the obedience and death of his Son. It was for our sakes that the work of redemption was undertaken, and not because of any lack or want on the part of the Most High. How modestly does the Savior here estimate his own goodness? What overwhelming reasons have we for imitating his humility? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Job 35, 7. But to the saints that are in the earth, these sanctified ones, although still upon the earth, partake of the results of Jesus' mediatorial work, and by his goodness are made what they are. The peculiar people, zealous for good works, and hallowed to sacred service, are arrayed in the Savior's righteousness and washed in his blood, and so receive of the goodness treasured up in him. These are the persons who are profited by the work of the man, Christ Jesus. But that work added nothing to the nature, virtue, or happiness of God, who is blessed forevermore. How much more forcibly is this true of us, poor unworthy servants, not fit to be mentioned in comparison with the faithful Son of God. Our hope must ever be that happily some poor child of God may be served by us, or the Great Father can never need our aid. Well, may we sing the verses of Dr. Watts, oft have my heart and tongue confessed, how empty and how poor I am, my praise can never make thee blessed, nor add new glories to thy name. Yet, Lord, thy saints on earth may reap some profit by the good we do. These are the company I keep. These are the choicest friends I know. Poor believers are God's receivers and have a warrant from the crown to receive the revenue 
of our offerings in the king's name. Saints departed we cannot bless. Even prayer for them is of no service. But while they are here, we should particularly prove our love to them, even as our master did, for they are the excellent of the earth. Despite their infirmities, their Lord thinks highly of them and reckons them to be as nobles among men. The title of his excellency more properly belongs to the meanest saint than to the greatest governor. The true aristocracy are believers in Jesus. They are the only right honorables. Stars and garters are poor distinctions compared with the graces of the Spirit. He who knows them best says of them, In whom is all my delight? They are his Hephzibah and his land Beulah, and before all worlds his delights were with these chosen sons of men. Their own opinion of themselves is far other than their beloved's opinion of them. They count themselves to be less than nothing, yet he makes much of them and sets his heart towards them. What wonders the eyes of divine love can see where the hands of infinite power have been graciously at work. It was this quick-sighted affection which led Jesus to see in us a recompense for all his agony and sustained him under all his sufferings by the joy of redeeming us from going down into the pit. The same loving heart which opens towards the chosen people is fast closed against those who continue in their rebellion against God. Jesus hates all wickedness, and especially the high crime of idolatry. The text, while it shows our Lord's abhorrence of sin, shows also the sinner's greediness after it. Professed believers are often slow towards the true Lord, but sinners hasten after another God. They run like madmen, where we creep like snails. Let their zeal rebuke our tardiness. Let theirs, in a case in which the more they haste, the worse they speed, for their sorrows are multiplied by their diligence in multiplying their sins. Matthew Henry pithily says, They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves, for whosoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. The cruelties and hardships which men endure for their false guards is wonderful to contemplate. Our missionary reports are a noteworthy comment on this passage, but perhaps our own experience is an equally vivid exposition, for when we have given our heart to idols, sooner or later we have had to smart for it. Near the roots of our self-love all our sorrows lie, and when that idol is overthrown, the sting is gone from grief. Moses broke the golden calf and ground it to powder and cast it into the water of which he made Israel to drink. And so shall our cherished idols become bitter portions for us unless we at once forsake them. Our Lord had no selfishness. He served but one Lord, 
and served him only. As for those who turn aside from Jehovah, he was separate from them, bearing their reproach without the camp. Sin and the Savior had no communion. He came to destroy, not to patronize or be allied with the works of the devil. Hence, he refused the testimony of unclean spirits as to his divinity, for in nothing would he have fellowship with darkness. We should be careful above measure not to connect ourselves to the remotest degree with falsehood and religion. Even the most solemn of popish rites we must abhor. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. The old proverb says, It is not safe to eat at the devil's mess, though the spoon be never so long. The mere mentioning of ill names it were well to avoid, nor take up their names into my lips. If we allow poison upon the lip, it may ere long penetrate to the inwards, and it is well to keep out of the mouth that which we would shut out from the heart. If the church would enjoy union with Christ, she must break all the bonds of impiety and keep herself pure from all the pollutions of carnal will-worship, which now pollute the service of God. Some professors are guilty of great sin in remaining in the communion of popish churches, where God is as much dishonored as in Rome herself, only in a more crafty manner. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. With what confidence and abounding joy does Jesus turn to Jehovah, whom his soul possessed and delighted in? Content beyond measure with his portion in the Lord, his God, he had not a single desire with which to hunt after other gods. His cup was full, and his heart was full, too. Even in his sorest sorrows, he still laid hold with both his hands upon his father, crying, My God, my God. He had not so much as a thought of falling down to worship the prince of this world. Although tempted with, in all these will I give thee, we too can make our boast in the Lord. He is the meat and the drink of our souls. He is our portion, supplying all our necessities, and our cup yielding royal luxuries, our cup in this life, and our inheritance in the life to come. As children of the Father who is in heaven, we inherit by virtue of our joint heirship with Jesus all the riches of the covenant of grace, and the portion which falls to us sets upon our table the bread of heaven and the new wine of the kingdom. Who would not be satisfied with such dainty diet? Our shallow cup of sorrow we may well drain with resignation, since the deep cup of love stands side by side with it, and will never be empty. Thou maintainest my lot. Some tenants have a covenant in their leases that they themselves shall maintain and uphold, but in our case Jehovah himself maintains our lot. Our Lord Jesus delighted in this truth, that the Father was on his side and would maintain his right 
against all the wrongs of men. He knew that his elect would be reserved for him, and that almighty power would preserve them as his lot and reward forever. Let us also be glad, because the judge of all the earth will vindicate our righteous cause. Verses 6-7 The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Jesus found the way of obedience to lead into pleasant places. Notwithstanding all the sorrows which marred his countenance, he exclaimed, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. It may seem strange, but while no other man was ever so thoroughly acquainted with grief, it is our belief that no other man ever experienced so much joy and delight in service. For no other served so faithfully and with such great results in view as his recompense of reward. The joy which was set before him must have sent some of its beams of splendor adown the rugged places where he endured the cross, despising the shame, and must have made them in some respects pleasant places to the generous heart of the Redeemer. At any rate, we know that Jesus was well content with the blood-bought portion which the lines of electing love marked off as his spoil with the strong and his portion with the great. Therein he solaced himself on earth and delights himself in heaven, and he asked no more goodly heritage than that his own beloved may be with him where he is and behold his glory all the saints can use the language of this verse and the more thoroughly they can enter into its contented grateful joyful spirit the better for themselves and the more glorious to their god our lord was poorer than we are for he had not where to lay his head and yet when he mentioned his poverty he never used a word of murmuring Discontented spirits are as unlike Jesus as the croaking raven is unlike the cooing dove. Martyrs have been happy in dungeons. From the delectable orchard of the Leonine prison, the Italian martyr dated his letter, and the presence of God made the gridiron of Lawrence pleasant to him. Mr. Greenham was bold enough to say, they never felt God's love or tasted forgiveness of sins who are discontented. Some divines think that discontent was the first sin, the rock which wrecked our race in paradise. Certainly there can be no paradise where this evil spirit has power. Its slime will poison all the flowers of the garden. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel praise as well as prayer was presented to the father by our lord jesus and we are not truly his followers unless our resolve be i will bless the lord jesus is called wonderful counselor 
but as man he spake not of himself but as his father and taught him read in confirmation of this john seven sixteen eight twenty eight and twelve forty nine fifty and the prophecy concerning him in isaiah eleven two three it was our redeemer's want to repair to his father for direction and having received it he blessed him for giving him counsel it would be well for us if we would follow his example of lowliness cease from trusting in our own understanding and seek to be guided by the spirit of god my reins also instruct me in the night seasons by the reins understand the inner man the affections and feelings the communion of the soul with god brings to it an inner spiritual wisdom which in still seasons is revealed to itself our redeemer spent many nights alone upon the mountain and we may readily conceive that together with his fellowship with heaven he carried on a profitable commerce with himself reviewing his experience forecasting his work and considering his position great generals fight their battles in their own mind long before the trumpet sounds and so did our lord win our battle on his knees before he gained it on the cross it is a gracious habit after taking counsel from above to take counsel within wise men see more with their eyes shut by night than fools can see by day with their eyes open he who learns from god and so gets the seed will soon find wisdom within himself growing in the garden of his soul thine ears shall hear a voice behind thee saying this is the way walk ye in it when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left the night season which the sinner chooses for his sins is the hallowed hour of quiet when believers hear the soft still voices of heaven and of the heavenly life within themselves verses eight nine ten eleven i have set the lord always before me because he is at my right hand i shall not be moved therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth my flesh also shall rest in hope for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore the fear of death at one time cast its dark shadow over the soul of the redeemer and we read that he was heard in that he feared there appeared unto him an angel strengthening him perhaps the heavenly messenger reassured him of his glorious resurrection as his people's surety and of the eternal joy into which he should admit the flock redeemed by blood then hope shone full upon our lord's soul and as recorded in these verses he surveyed the future 
with holy confidence because he had a continued eye to jehovah and enjoyed his perpetual presence he felt that thus sustained he could never be driven from his life's grand design nor was he for he stayed not his hand till he could say it is finished what an infinite mercy was this for us in this immovableness caused by simple faith in the divine help jesus is to be viewed as our exemplar to recognize the presence of the lord is the duty of every believer i have set the lord always before me and to trust the lord as our champion and guard is the privilege of every saint because he is at my right hand i shall not be moved the apostle translates this passage i foresee the lord always before my face acts two and twenty five the eye of jesus's faith could discern beforehand the continuance of divine support to his suffering son in such a degree that he should never be moved from the accomplishment of his purpose of redeeming his people by the power of god at his right hand he foresaw that he should smite through all who rose up against him and on that power he placed the firmest reliance he clearly foresaw that he must die for he speaks of his flesh resting and of his soul in the abode of separate spirits death was full before his face or he would not have mentioned corruption but such was his devout reliance upon his god that he sang over the tomb and rejoiced in vision of the sepulchre he knew that the visit of his soul to sheol or to the invisible world of the disembodied spirits would be a very short one and that his body in a very brief space would leave the grave uninjured by its sojourn there all this made him say my heart is glad and moved his tongue the glory of his fame to rejoice in god the strength of his salvation oh for such holy faith in the prospect of trial and of death it is the work of faith not merely to create a peace which passeth all understanding but to fill the heart full of gladness until the tongue which as the organ of an intelligent creature is our glory burst forth in notes of harmonious praise faith gives us living joy and bestows dying rest my flesh also shall rest in hope our lord jesus was not disappointed in his hope he declared his father's faithfulness in the words thou wilt not leave my soul in hell and that faithfulness was proven on the resurrection morning among the departed and disembodied jesus was not left he had believed in the resurrection and he received it on the third day when his body rose in glorious life according as he had said in joyous confidence neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption into the outer prison of the grave his body might go 
but into the inner prison of corruption he could not enter. He who in soul and body was preeminently God's holy one was loosed from the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. This is noble encouragement to all the saints. Die they must, but rise they shall. And though in their case they shall seek corruption, yet they shall rise to everlasting life. Christ's resurrection is the cause, the earnest, the guarantee, and the emblem of the rising of all his people. Let them therefore go to their graves as to their beds, resting their flesh among the clods as they now do upon their couches. Since Jesus is mine, I'll not fear undressing, but gladly put off these garments of clay. To die in the Lord is a covenant blessing, since Jesus to glory through death led the way. Wretched will that man be, who when the Philistines of death invade his soul, shall find that like Saul he is forsaken of God. But blessed is he who has the Lord at his right hand, for he shall fear no ill, but shall look forward to the eternity of bliss. Thou wilt show me the path of life. To Jesus first this way was shown, for he is the first begotten from the dead, the firstborn of every creature. He himself opened up the way through his own flesh and then trod it as the forerunner of his own redeemed. The thought of being made the path of life to his people gladdened the soul of Jesus. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Christ, being raised from the dead, ascended into glory to dwell in constant nearness to God, where joy is at its full forever. The foresight of this urged him onward in his glorious but grievous toil to bring his chosen to eternal happiness with the high ambition which inspired him and made him wade through a sea of blood. O oh God, when the worldling's mirth has all expired, forever with Jesus may we dwell at thy right hand, where there are pleasures forevermore. And meanwhile, may we have an earnest by tasting thy love below. Trapp's note on the heavenly verse which closes the psalm is a sweet morsel which may serve for a contemplation and yield a foretaste of our inheritance. He writes, Here is as much said as can be, but words are too weak to utter it. For quality there is in heaven joy and pleasures, for quantity a fullness, a torrent whereat they drink without let or loathing. For constancy it is at God's right hand, who is stronger than all, neither can any take out of his hand. It is a constant happiness without intermission. And for perpetuity, 
it is for evermore. Heaven's joys are without measure, mixture, or end. End of Psalm 16 Recording by Simon Wainwright